On today's episode, we talk to the creator of Qbert, the arcade game, Warren Davis. Welcome to the Nostalgia Test Podcast, the show where two longtime friends put their mainstream pop culture past to the ultimate test, the Nostalgia Test. Woo, Dan, what's going on? Manny, how are you? I gotta you? jump in right here. Just jump right in. I'm, I mean, I'm excited. This is gonna be a different episode lately. for this season. I had to. You, you, you take up all the announcements. You got the drops, you got the intro to the podcast, so I have to sometimes jump in. Plus, I got to insert my New Yorkness where we just interrupt everybody anyway. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, you're in LA. You got soft, bro. You got wow. soft. That's called happiness. <laughs> That's called happiness, Manny. <laughs> Anyways, um, so excited about today's episode. It's going to be yeah. a little bit different. Um, Absolutely. You know, in on the Nostalgia Test podcast, this is not really a test. We're not doing a test. This is going to be like the orange years. I'm so ready to like sit and learn and like talk about something that as a kid, I mean, man, you went to arcades as a kid, right? Yeah. Nathan's was right. Well, there was one at the, the Long Beach um, mm-hmm. boardwalk uh, was very popular. The ones obviously arcades at the mall. And yeah. then Nathan's was huge. Yeah. And um, I just remember everything that when I think about arcade, I think about the coin, um, that little mm. belt thing that they had back yeah. before like coin machines were a thing. You yeah. used to have to go to somebody and get change. And they had that like quarter belt, like thing, the change belt attached yeah. to them. You, The guy like counted change so quickly. Like I can't do math like that. And I just remember <laughs> that metal belt yeah. um, with arcades. So yeah. yeah. And like I actually was also, when I was in film school, there was a guy – that I that was dating my cousin at the time. He was also a filmmaker, and he was really into arcades. He even came up with a movie called Arcadians, where oh. it was just about kids who were really into arcades, wow. like the competitions. Like the one of his friends was like he had the high score on one of the arcade games. Wow! Like in uh, like Centipede or something like that. Oh like, God! Yeah, it was crazy. So yeah, yeah, I remember arcades. I thought arcades were such a good time, and then I guess Nintendo comes in and or Atari, I guess, and then kind of ruins that whole oh, that whole aspect. But. I think yeah, and I, I love I loved arcades too. I mean, I I remember going to arcades when I was a kid. I remember playing all sorts of arcade games. I think like one of the things too was cool when I was living in Queens. They had the Museum of the Moving Image, and they had a whole like arcade retrospective on one of the top floors, and they had like really old arcade games that you could play, and also games and like you could see the history of the arcade game and it moving towards like what we have now. Um, and then I spent a lot of time at Grasshopper Comics playing Magic the Gathering and playing that Marvel fighting arcade game hours just standing in front of that getting my ass kicked uh over and over again but i think that's the cool thing about arcades the good arcade game forces you to put the quarters continue to put quarters right in that machine and you just want to keep putting quarters in it but um all that being said i mean we are really excited as everyone you know you all could tell in the audience about our guest today um we have a really great guest (laughs) who (laughs) arcade game developer and also someone who's in the arcade um hall of fame right i guess uh warren davis warren thank you so much for being here 
Well, hello there. I'm uh, very, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, I mean, when we first met and we were talking about this, I was like, I was like, oh, I cannot wait to have Warren on the podcast because I have so many things to talk about. But also, this is like a good moment for us to kind of learn about these things that we see as kids and like kind of take for granted that they exist and kind of they're just there and seeing someone on the other side who've like created these amazing machines for, you know, and games for us to kind of like you know, spend our time and our childhood um, going, you know, going to them and playing. But I would love, you know, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and then we'll just like hop right in. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I, uh, I got into the arcade industry in 1982, uh, January of 1982. I started Gottlieb Amusement Games. It was Gottlieb, of course, one of the great pinball manufacturers from the early 20th century. Uh, along with, you know, Williams, Bally, Stern, Midway, you know, there were there were tons of them in the early part of the 20th century. But then in the latter half of the 20th century, you know, video games came out in the uh, 1970s and uh, coin-op especially, uh, particularly. And uh, most of the pinball manufacturers got into it. So uh, that's kind of where I entered the picture. I, I wasn't there at the very beginning. Uh, I was still in college in the early 70s, but uh, actually I was in high school in the very early 70s. But, uh, uh, you know, I I graduated. I I had a degree in a master's degree in electrical engineering. And uh, the idea of making video games was a dream job. So um, I was thrilled to have that opportunity, although there's a little bit more to it. I I don't want to bore you with with a million details, but feel free to ask any questions about stuff. But yeah, so I came in 1982. Qbert was my first game. Didn't really know much. I I worked as a supplemental programmer on another game and uh, learned the ropes of the hardware. Uh, And then, you know, they were like, all right, make a game. So (laughs) that turned out to be Qbert. So that was uh, that was very fortunate for me. And uh, but my career went on in the arcade industry for almost 15 years, 13 or 14 years. Uh, and then I moved to Los Angeles and I worked in the home game industry hmm. for uh, years. Uh, um, and I worked for ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, for a couple of years. I was a Disney Imagineer. Uh, for four months. <laughs> That's still awesome. The, I got obsessed with, uh, I got to jump in right here because there's a Imagineer like um, series now on Disney Plus. Yeah, I've seen And it. I was like, oh my God, I want to be an Imagineer. Like <laughs> that job just looks so cool. Like basically they you get paid to like imagine anything and they're like, all right, let's figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's like- there's like it's so cool. I, I I was like floored watching the series, and I just I was just in awe. Yeah. Now let me ask you. So you were were you a programmer, like a yeah. computer program? Yep. So you, and did you know you wanted to be like making games, or you like you could have gone into like I don't know being like a a programmer for like satellite tracking systems or something like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say, you know, here's the thing. So from my from my very earliest age, I always knew I wanted to entertain people, whatever that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't particularly want to be an actor. I didn't particularly want to be uh, a singer or a musician. I just knew I liked entertaining people. And when I was in high school, the two career choices I wanted to follow going into college were either filmmaking or computers. And uh, of course, you know, my guidance counselor, my parents, they all steered me to computers. That seemed more like a real job than filmmaking. (laughs) 
Um, but I didn't mind. That was fine with me. So I, I studied computer engineering. I, I studied a, a program that was sort of like hardware and software. So it wasn't just programming, but also computer design and, and circuitry and things like that. And it wasn't until later that I really sort of drifted more towards the software end of things. Uh, but but I, I think that was a wise choice on my part. I, I really do like software and software design. Anyway, but the idea of making a video game, once, once, I, once they were invented and I saw them and I played them, I thought this, this has got to be the best job for, for a computer engineer. Mm. But I didn't know how to get that job. I had no idea where you go or who you talk to. Right. So out of college, I just got a regular old engineering job. I worked for Bell Laboratories. Uh, I, I went to school on the East Coast, uh, you know, North upstate New York, uh, RPI. And then I took this job in outside of Chicago. So I moved to the Midwest and, and started this job, which which I liked. It wasn't terrible. I, I enjoyed it. But eventually I became disillusioned at Bell Labs and I left to study, of all things, improvisation at Second City, which I was oh, wow. introduced okay. to in Chicago when I wow. when I moved to suburban Illinois and I would go into Chicago on the weekends. I, you know, I'd see the Second City shows and I think, oh, that looks like fun. I think I could do that. So I went to the box office at the Second City Theater. I said, well, where do you go to learn this stuff, how to do this? And they pointed me to what was at that time the only improv school in Chicago. This is 1981. Mm, yeah. There, were no, there was no Second City Training Center. Right. The only place you could go for training and a place where a lot of very famous people went is the Players Workshop of Second City run by Josephine Forsberg. Mm. And, and uh, so I studied improv there and started performing. I quit my job at Bell Labs and I thought, oh, this, this is going to be my career. But, uh, you know, eventually, <laughs> you know, you need to you need to live and you need to pay your bills. So uh, I, I had to start looking for a real job. And I, I took some crazy, crazy little jobs along mm. the way. But uh, I would also look at engineering jobs in, in the paper. Mm. And the craziest thing was that uh, right at the end of 1981, I saw an ad in the Sunday Tribune looking for video game programmers. Hmm. I couldn't believe it. It was Gottlieb. They had an ad in the paper. Wow. So I answered that ad and the, I guess the rest you can say is history. Wow. That's first like of all. <laughs> go ahead, man. Go. <laughs> I went wow. to school for film. So I'm not a filmmaker. I uh, became an electrician and now I own my own brewery. Oh, so shameless plugs. That's L-I-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y brewing.com. That's crazy <laughs> that you were about to make that life decision. And I mean, wow, that's a crazy life trajectory. And then yeah. <laughs> then you like get this job. My my thing was like, so did you come up with Qbert or like you were in, in a group and like you guys are thinking, let's make this game. Yeah. And let's design this character. So the evolution of Qbert came from basically management said, make a game, period. <laughs> That's it. Wow. <laughs> I love I, that. I was, uh, I was a programmer at Gottlieb at that time. The programmers were the game designers. You know, they were, it, it was their responsibility to come up with an idea to come up with. And they, because basically one person would code the entire game. Wow. But I was very fortunate to be, uh, you know, given an artist to work with named Jeff Lee, uh, extraordinarily talented guy. And he became my collaborator. 
So, you know, because it was my first game, I wasn't uh, egotistical enough to think, oh, I know exactly how to make a video game. Just the opposite. I was like, I don't have any idea. So, you know, uh, I was just sort of punting. And and Qbert itself started just as a programming exercise. I, I didn't I wasn't trying to make a game. I was just trying <laughs> wow. to learn a couple of concepts, for example, randomness. Uh, the balls bouncing down the pyramid of cubes, you know, yeah. they come down randomly. Yeah. I was just me trying to figure out a way to implement a random number generator and uh, and <sighs> gravity, because in, in the little project I'd worked on before Qbert, I things there was no gravity. Things fell at a constant rate. <laughs> so I was like, I kind of want to see how I can mimic real world physics just a little bit better. And that's, a, you know, and so I had this idea for the balls bouncing and, and the pyramid came from looking at some art. Jeff had created this, you know, uh, this, this cube illusion, but he created it to fill the screen for another programmer. Mm. And that programmer was just using it as a backdrop. He's just using it for art. Uh, it wasn't functional. But when I looked at it, I thought, you know, if you carve that into a pyramid, uh, every time a ball bounces, it has one of two ways to go, right? That's Sorry. that's binary. Yeah. And, you know, programmers love binary choices. And, uh, and, and so if you took a binary bit, right, a bit for every row of this pyramid, you could fit an entire path for a ball in a byte, which is eight bits. Hmm. So uh, all you need is a random number generator to generate random bites and boom, I have random paths for this, for these balls falling down. And then, and then I was programming physics to make the balls bounce. And that's all I, I thought, okay, that'd be cool to do that. Just so I could teach myself how to, how to program this stuff. Once I had a pyramid and balls bouncing down it, well, people, you know, people at the office would look at it and go, wow, that's really cool. What is it? What are you going to do with it? And I'd be like, well, I don't know. But the next obvious thing would be to put a player character and have some player jumping around. And again, that's where Jeff Lee came in. He, I had, I asked him. I said, "Do you have Do you have any characters you've kind of drawn up just with no no particular game attached to them?" And and he was like, "Yeah." And he he put a bunch of characters on the screen. Oh wow! And uh, and I was like, "I like that one. The, the big one with the big long nose, you know." And of course, Jeff had designed him that way. The, the idea that he would shoot out of his nose. But that was too complicated for me. I was—I just needed a guy jumping around the pyramid. But you know, Jeff was very gracious, and he yeah. let me use the guy, and he gave me all the orientations of the guy that I needed. You know, facing up and to the right, up to mm -hmm. the left, and all that stuff. And off I was. With the next thing I knew, I had a player character jump jumping around this pyramid. Uh, wow. And then it was like, well, what do I do now? What do I do next? And, and literally, the entire game happened that way. I would put something in look at what I had and then say, well, what does it need? What, what, what should I put in next? And uh, that's literally how the game evolved. Wow. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> oh my God. so you had the character in there and then you're like, okay, he's now going to go up the pyramid and like he has to. Well, Kubert jumps like, all over the pyramid, right? I mean, yeah, Kubert can just jump yeah, all over the pyramid. But his goal is to get to the top. No. Right? No. Isn't that? No. 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 What was the goal you of Cuba? Demonstrated a, a lack of knowledge of the goal of Cuba. <laughs> I I play Cuba maybe one time. I'm going to be no, honest. Cuba changes the color of the pyramid. Like he's yes. trying to change the color of all the little boxes that he jumps on. Yeah, the top, the top of, of every. He jumps on a cube, and the top of that cube, the top square, will yeah. change color. And, okay. And by the way, that was another thing I I was kind of stuck was I I had. 
this player character jumping all over the pyramid, but what's the point of the game? Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a vice president of engineering uh, named Ron Waxman. And he and this other guy who was the VP of business development, Howie Rubin, they, they literally were the creators of the video game department. And they mm. were our protectors from management, which is a whole nother story I can get into. But Ron would stay late at night. And Ron was the kind of guy who he was very scary. If you didn't know him, you would be scared of him. He's he was hugely large, round. He just never looked like he smiled. He always looked very gruff. He smoked a cigar and, you know, in reality, he was the sweetest guy, but you, you would not know that if you didn't know him. So, and at night, sometimes like if you were working late, he'd, he'd stay and he'd sit behind you and you just hear him breathing. You'd, you'd, oh, you know, you'd be working, whatever, but he'd be behind you and you just, it was like Darth Vader, you know, this, oh, man. you know, you just hear him and you smell that cigar smoke, but, oh. uh, and I was one night I was like, had the, the guys jumping around the pyramid and Ron goes, what if the cubes change color when he lands on him? <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Wow. And that's and so, funny. Again, you know, it just it just evolved. Uh, if people came up with ideas that I thought were good ideas, I would take them and use them. And if they and if, believe me, a lot of people came up with a lot of ideas I did not take. Mm. But uh, I was the I was the filter because because I had to code everything that went in the game. And wow. if I if I thought something was out of my scope or I didn't know how to do it, I or was going to make my life too difficult. I, I just said no. Mm. I know. So yeah, go was ahead, it man. still when did it turn into like, OK, this is no longer a training exercise. This is going to be the game. Yeah, uh, I think it had gone far enough that I knew that it could become a full game. And I think. Uh, when when Howie Rubin, uh, the VP of business development, when he r- saw it at some point, he, he tells this story that's a pretty funny story. I don't know if it's entirely true, but he says uh, like he went away on a business trip to Japan and he says when he left, you know, there, there wasn't really much going on. There wasn't much to see. And he came back two weeks later and it was like a completely fully formed game. And that's when he put it on the schedule. But I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think he's exaggerating a little bit. Wow. I mean, I, I love Qbert, but I, it's it's funny because we talked a little bit about, we talked uh, when we first met about how I talked about Qbert being on Atari, but there's a different translation between the arcade and the, you know, the home game. And I remember you saying something like, oh, well, the Atari, the arcade game is, you know, better developed and, you know, this and that. And I'm like, curious like well what are the differences like even in that game but that you find the differences between arcade development and what we see as like home game development as well well if you look at um the games at the time you know 1982 let's say you know the atari 2600 Mm -hmm. was was our was our home competition i wouldn't call it competition because even though you know our pixel resolution was like 256 by 240 pixels, which is basically you know no vert, no resolution. I mean, we have we have phones, we have phones that are like you know 4K. So it's, yeah. it's if you think about it, our pixel resolution was very low, um, but but our color resolution was 16 colors, mm. and we could choose out of a palette of about 32,000 colors. So we could pick. 16 colors out of 32,000. And that was our color resolution. 
the Atari was made for to display maybe like four colors. So that and and again, the pixel resolution was even less than than the arcade games. And so mm. it was designed to do Pong, you know, mm. it, so the, the hardware was a huge limitation. Although I have to say the, the programmers who had a program for the Atari 2600 yeah. found crazy inventive ways to, to make it do a lot more than it was literally designed to do. Mm. But unfortunately, the Atari 2600 version of Qbert, I thought, was just terrible. Just mm. horrible, horrible, horrible graphics. And maybe the gameplay was all right. But if I remember, the, the tops of the cubes that changed color, they were like, you know, two pixels thick or something. It was, <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was ridiculous. But uh, yeah. again, they had real severe limitations. Of course, then other systems came out. Um, the ColecoVision, I thought, had oh, yes. a really fantastic uh, port of Qbert because it was capable of displaying better color resolution, better pixel resolution. Mm. But uh, the arcades always tried to stay one step ahead of uh, home games. That was sort of, you know, that was our thing. And we did that up until I'd say the 90s. I think mm. it was in the 1990s, the mid 1990s, where the home systems and the graphics cards available started to uh, outperform the arcade machines. Mm. So as far as you're developing this game, I always have a question with with arcade games. Like, so you were talking about gameplay, and I'm always like, when I'm thinking like in an arcade game, it's a quarter suck, right? Like, your goal is to get for it to be hard enough that it's challenging, but easy enough that you can feel like accomplished. And then when you die, you're like, wait, I want to put more quarters in because I could get to the end. Yeah. So, like, is that in the back of your brain when you're developing a game? Or was it just like, I'm just developing a game? Let me tell yeah. you a little bit about the, the way the business went, okay? Because I worked for Gottlieb, and Gottlieb was a manufacturer. We manufactured video games. Mm. We made our money by selling those video games to distributors, mm. okay? Now, okay. a distributor is a person or is a company that takes those video games, and they put them in places like pizza parlors, arcades, bowling alleys, and they take a cut of whatever the game earns. Okay, so they don't actually sell these games to arcades. Generally, they 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 put them in and they take a cut. So they make a vig, huh? They make a vig in the like in the construction industry. It's like a vig. They get anytime it was being like if the game earned eight hundred dollars that weekend, they get a percentage of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a vig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I learned a new term today. In the so, construction industry, it's like you you. Like, let's say I somebody is like, oh, I know a great electrician, uh, call Manny. And if I got called, they're like the contractor would tell me like, hey, the client's going to call you, you know, uh, give him an estimate of uh, uh, $2,000 and get put a VIG in there for me. Yeah. Like add $200 because I gave you the... I gave you the recommendations. You got gotcha. the gotcha. Contractor gotcha. secrets. <laughs> so anyway, so, that, so that's how the, the business worked. So, wow. you know, it now... If a game didn't collect quarters, mm. well, then distributors wouldn't want to buy it from us. So, you know, even though we didn't actually make money based on how much, how many coins the thing took in, it was in our best interest. And I'm, a, I was certainly aware of that. Although when I was making Qbert, I, I didn't really care about that so much because it was my first game. I was just happy enough to get something done. Mm. And once all the elements were in there, and I started to tune it because that's the next stage. Once you've got all the elements in there, then you have to tune it. 
And that's where I had to start thinking about that at least a little bit. You know, you don't want to make it too easy. You don't want to make it too hard. Originally, the only feedback I'm getting is from the people in the office who are playing it, mm. right? And and they're giving me a lot of feedback about, oh, it's too hard. Oh, you do this and that. And, you know, the joystick shouldn't be at a 45 degree angle. Oh, what? You, know, <laughs> you shouldn't be able to jump off the pyramid and die. It's too oh. hard. Wah, wah, wah. You know, people are always complaining. But uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking because like that's like a child like like my th- like five year old nephew like oh this is too hard like that's funny that like programmers are like no no they they were even upset that's well I funny. just I, listen I I I did want it to be challenging obviously mm-hmm. but I also you know I wanted people to have to learn some things you know yeah anyway uh there were a couple of things i stuck to my guns on and there were some things that i relented and i made it a little slower and a little easier but you know that that tuning process continued after we actually put it out on test in our some arcades mm. and we would watch people play it and we get some feedback that way uh we also had focus groups uh so you know there were a variety of ways to get feedback but uh to answer your original question i mean it really was not foremost on my mind when i was developing it Because I was just too green, you know, I was just too Mm. new to think about it. So what was it like to see the game once it was done and constructed and it was, you could see it like that, like to see it out in the public. I mean, this is such an interesting question to me because it's like with musicians or, or filmmakers or things like that, you know, it comes on the radio. It's like this, you know, you see your movie, but when a game developer, and especially someone who makes an arcade there's a real physical part to it that you can literally go to and see it out in public much more like what was that like to see your game out in public for the first time uh it was crazy i mean (laughs) i couldn't believe it i i mean seriously was i I didn't know what to do i didn't know how to behave Uh, i'll tell you this i'll tell you this one story so uh, the game's released, you know, it's starting to filter its way out in the world. And there was a bar in Chicago. This is where I, I lived in Chicago at the time. There was a bar uh, called the Gaslight Corner. And it was an actor's bar because at the time I was, uh, even though making video games with my day job, uh, I was taking acting classes at night. I was taking a, a two-year Meisner technique uh, at a place called the Lois Hall Studio, which happened to be literally next door to the Gaslight Corner. Hmm. Uh, and... And there was a point where the Gaslight Corner got a Q-Bert. They actually so awesome. got, you know, the, the bar where I'm hanging out has my game. And I, I have to say, uh, back in those days, I kind of kept my, my acting and my video game making completely separate. Mm. Uh, uh, because I really didn't want to be pegged as one thing or the other. And, and, and I was, you know, afraid that if people peg me as a video game guy who I just, you know, I'm just playing around in this acting world and they wouldn't take me seriously and, and kind of vice versa. So I really didn't intertwine those, but I do remember there was one guy who, I don't even know if you, you, you may know who this is. You may not, but uh, at the time he was performing on the second city main stage. Uh, his name is Tim Kazarinski. Uh, hmm. He was, he's probably best known for being in the police Academy movies. But uh, a lot of these Second City people would hang out the Gaslight Corner. Uh, and I just struck up a conversation with him. And, and I remember I, I revealed to him that Qbert was, was my game, that I made that game. <laughs> and, and it was the first time that I had done that. And, and I just, I don't know, it was just such a weird feeling. You know, first of all, just 
watching people play and not telling them is a weird feeling, but then telling somebody, uh, that's my game. I made that game. You know, uh, it, it, I just, it was so, it was so weird. I was, wow. I felt, uh, I felt very, uh, I don't know. It was a joyful thing, but uh, it's really funny because then we went and had a conversation because he was, he's also a writer mm. and we had this conversation about script writing software for computers, which at that time didn't exist. No. You know, and he was like, you know, you, you should write some kind of script writing software. Uh, that would really be helpful. And I thought, yeah, you know what? That would be a great idea. But, you know, I, I already had a day job and uh, so I left that to other people. But boy, yeah, could have cornered the market. It's like, yo, I made Hubert. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to me about yeah. script writing software. Yeah. But then, uh, of course, you know, many different script writing softwares came along and eventually final draft sort of won out. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I, and Cuber has lasted. I mean, I played it and I still remember playing it. And I think it's one of those games that even though in its, in its simplicity is still really challenging. I remember playing it again when I was at the museum and the moving image, they had a Cubert, and I was like, man, these ga- this game is actually really much harder. And then I remember, and I remember Manny and I have done episodes on, you know, games from Sega Genesis and I, when I go back and play even games from the Sega Genesis, I'm like, these games are way more difficult than I remember. Like we played Echo the Dolphin and I couldn't even get past the first like two <laughs> seconds of the game. And their games are so complex with their graphics, but I feel like not easier, but like, I don't know, like the challenge of like solving a puzzle or solving the board or something like that isn't really in there where Qbert was like, had the interactiveness and also like, you have to solve this puzzle because I remember in Cubert, if you go back sometimes on some levels, it changes the color back. So yep. you're like, Oh, now I got to go back and get that one. I got to go back. And it like, it, it was so interestingly challenging, but in, when I think of it in its simplicity, it's like, it, it was just like a really great game. I, I'm really, I don't know. I'm blown away by the fact of how it just kind of came to as like an exercise almost. And then here it is kind of like developed into a well, game. Well, I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I have a sensibility that I, I love puzzles. I'm a puzzle guy. And, uh, you know, there were certain things that I wanted to put in there. Like, again, I wanted to make it challenging, but I also wanted to make it something, you know, you had to kind of think about. Mm-hmm. And like when people tell me that they're not very good at Qbert, I, I try to offer a little bit of advice because uh, the thing about Qbert <laughs> is there are times where the smart thing is not to move. Like, I think a lot of people shoot themselves in the foot because they're always constantly moving Mm -hmm. but there are times where you just want to sit and and let something pass you by or scope out what you need to do and it's those little breathers that i i think uh some people don't uh don't take advantage of and i think that helps you a lot Mm -hmm. some people are very good at that's the other weird thing in fact we you know we got reports within a few weeks of releasing the arcade game which by the way was released in October of 1982. So this year, 2022, is the 40th anniversary of Qbert. Holy nostalgia. Wow. Uh, coming up this October. <laughs> wow. Uh, but we got reports within a few weeks of people playing for hours on a single quarter, wow. which freaked me out because it's like, <laughs> oh, no, I did a terrible job of tuning. Uh, mm. People are playing it for literally hours at a time. So that prompted me to go back and create a completely, not a completely new, but an an enhanced version, Hmm. which I dubbed faster, harder, more challenging Qbert, which you may not have heard of because it was never officially released, Hmm. Uh, but it did. 
they didn't want to take it out. or like they well what you know i literally uh you know jeff and i and and dave feel by the way i ha- i i need to mention dave feel who did the sounds for cubert and and <sighs> we can talk about his contributions and we should because yeah. they were huge and 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 added a great deal to the game but yeah. uh you know uh, he was on to other things but jeff and i worked on faster harder more challenging cubert because it seemed like it was too easy for out there and i was worried about that and so we came up with this version but it went you know management tested it but they put it out on test like i don't know three months after the original cubert you know cubert was still filtering into arcades it was still brand new some places in the country so i think it was just too soon hmm. and, yeah. and my thought was well hold on to it for a year and release it in a year and i hmm. still to this day i have no idea why they did not do that it it just doesn't make any sense to me, but they didn't. Yeah, you it could never have been got like Cubert two, huh? You could add like a Cubert, a Cubert two, like well, that's like what a second it, one. It, if you held on to it, it would have been yeah. a Cubert two. Although that's I didn't want to call it Cubert two. It's a little pedestrian, so I that's why I called it <laughs> faster, harder, more challenging Cubert because people would say, "Well, what's different about it?" Mm, and I said, "Well, it's it. faster, it's harder, and it's more challenging." So. <laughs> You know, it's that acting. Yeah, you have to do fifty cents instead of twenty five cents. <laughs> no, they wouldn't have gotten away with that. Uh, no, the, the fifty cent thing came a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. Like mm. I'd say, the fifty cent thing probably came in with maybe the Laserdisc games a year later. Mm. Yeah, but they didn't. And so uh, I put it. You know, I I ended up getting a, an engineering cabinet of the original Cubert, and uh, it's called an engineering sample because it's not a production cabinet. Mm. It's sort of Frankenstein together, but mm. uh, I put faster, harder, more challenging Cubert in that cabinet, and that's been in my home forever, ever since you know, ever since 1983 or whenever I got the cabinet. Wow! And uh, but in 1997, when I was working for Disney, one of the guys that I uh, worked with knew the guys who did the Mame project. You, are you familiar with Mame? MAME stands for multi-arcade machine emulation. It's software that runs on a PC Hmm. that emulates arcade hardware. Hmm. So if you take the ROM images, like, you know, the ROMs or the chips that go into these uh, arcade games that have the program and, and the artwork, if you just take that data as a file and plug it into this software emulator, the emulator basically emulates the hardware and plays Hmm. the game. Oh, wow. And there were thousands, thousands of uh, video arcade games you could play on your PC with the oh, development wow. of this MAME emulator. Anyway, so I they had Cubert, they had emulated Cubert, and I <laughs> wow. and I told the guy, well, I have these ROMs for this unreleased version, and it's real, it's just a ROM swap. It's the exact same hardware. And he was like, well, you you want to give me the ROM images, and I'll I'll hand them over to the MAME guys, and that's exactly what I did. <laughs> And, oh, wow. uh, and he handed them over. And now uh, since 1997, uh, Faster, Harder, More Challenging Cubert has been available to play. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> it's so weird wow. when we get the inside stories of these worlds because like Manny and I are on the other side of the screen, literally just button smashing. And to think yeah. about like everything that happens on the other end is just like, it's these unbelievable journeys. I mean, you even said like, the sounds in Cubert, like, and, and as well, I mean, if you'd like to talk about that, because I'd love to know about that, because when I think of those older arcades, like the sounds are so interesting um, and all like how you get those sounds and choose that sound for these things. Sure. 
Well, you know, Gottlieb, uh, again, a pinball manufacturer for many years and mm -hmm. pinballs have sounds. And so there was an electronic soundboard that we used on our pinball machines. Uh, and it had a variety of things, uh, you know, synthesizer chip and stuff like that. And uh, we, we were using the same exact soundboard for Qbert. And it turns out that there's a chip on our soundboard called a Votrax. And the purpose of the Votrax is to generate human speech. And it does that mm -hmm. by putting together strings of phonemes. Now, if you don't know what a phoneme is, it's just a little piece of sound. Yeah. So like, like if you made the F sound, that's a phoneme. Mm -hmm. If you make a little vowel sound, ah, uh, those are phonemes. And when you string phonemes together, you get words, hmm. right? Well, the the sound quality was just awful. I mean, it was, you know, it was like robotic and nasty. And and Dave particularly seemed to have trouble on, on pinball machines trying to get it to say bonus. Hmm. I guess it, it didn't sound like bonus. It sounded like bogus. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he just hated this chip and thought it was terrible. Um, but that's what was available at the time. And he had the brilliant idea for Qbert. What if I just throw random numbers at this chip? And that's how Qbert's speech was created. He's literally just throwing random numbers at this phoneme generator. And so it's putting out random phonemes. Oh, wow. And, and the crazy thing, the crazy thing is that people think they hear stuff, uh, curse words and such. Yeah. And the reality is they might be. It's by, you know, <laughs> yeah. some curse words are just two phonemes. If you get those two random phonemes together by chance, you'll hear that word, but it's not programmed to say anything in particular. There's only two pieces of actual speech in the entire game. Wow. And that is when you turn the power on, from, you know, the, the electricity, literally, it says, hello, I'm turned on. That's one piece <laughs> of speech. And the other is uh, after you've been, Entered your initials in the high score table, I believe. He says, bye-bye. That's it. And other than that, there's literally no actual speech programmed. It's wow. is that why, random. Is that why the illustration of Qbert, like it looks like the curse word symbols? Like yeah. when he's speaking? Yeah, is exactly. It, yeah. So the idea was, you know, he gets hit in the head. You know? <laughs> Yeah. So that, that was sort of like, a, it was all just sort of, uh, and, and then, you know, Jeff, I think Jeff Lee was the one who, who had the idea for the cartoon balloon and created it. Wow. Uh, it was all just, you know, a, a miracle of, uh, of, you know, the right idea at the right time. Did you know it was going to be a hit? No, no. I mean, how could I, I didn't know anything. I, I, I knew that I liked it. I knew that I found it enjoyable. I knew that other people in the company thought it had potential but i mean until it went out into an arcade and started to get some coin collections i there was no way that mm. i could possibly guess or imagine uh that it would be popular and then when it finally came out and it was popular i i was just stunned at how popular it was mm. uh it was the hit of the trade show that it, it came out in november uh or uh let's see october is when it started rolling off the production line but i believe in november was a trade show where it was first introduced in the coin-op industry. Mm. And it was like, you know, the hit of the show and people were calling it the game of the show and everybody was, it got great reviews and in the industry trades. And uh, yeah. It was, and Do you it, remember who you were, I guess, the arch nemesis of 
that year was, like <laughs> what Cuber like, was going against? Uh, there were a couple of great games that came out that year. Uh, Joust was one of them. Oh, God. Which yes. uh, was designed by a, a friend of mine, John, somebody who I, he got to know and work with in, in, in the aftermath, John Newcomer. And um, Popeye was also uh, predicted to be a very hot game. Wow. Uh, somehow did not <laughs> withstand the test of time, but uh, in 1982, Popeye was was uh, considered one of the one of the hit games. Uh, oh, wow. I'm wondering if pole, there was a pole position or maybe a pole position too. But yeah, there were a number of, of games that were people yeah. were very excited about. But I will, I will I have to say that was also a time. 1982 was still a time where you could come out with a great game, and right. you know the 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 arcade industry went through a crash. Mm. in 1984 oh, wow. so uh 1982 was still kind of the the, the good years the golden mm. years wow wow so did the arcade game did, you said they had a crash was that because of like home entertainment systems or like computers like no had, actually i i don't no. believe that is true uh there were a couple of there were a couple of reasons one was that the industry had grown so fast mm. Late 70s, arcades sprang up everywhere. Everybody was opening up arcades and you they needed product. And so in addition to the major players, uh, you had a lot of just sort of like no-name manufacturers jumping up and just putting schlock out. You know, they would just put anything together just to make some money. And they could make money because people needed games to fill their arcades. And then what happened was I think the players got burned out the innovation maybe went away let's say and there were a lot of knockoffs and repeats of of games that had already been out and i think players got fatigued uh and and the growth became unsustainable and uh, basically the whole industry just imploded like in 1984 um the other part of it was laser disc games that's another big factor <sighs> because pioneer came out with a particular model of laser disc player and a lot of game manufacturers put that in their cabinets and they came out with laser disc games. You may remember Dragon's Lair, mm -hmm. uh, Space Ace, um, mm -hmm. Firefox from Atari. Yeah. I think it was Atari. Uh, and, and, and Gottlieb was no different. They came out with Mach 3, which was a huge hit. Mm. Um, and then uh, I actually made a game, uh, a laser disc game uh, called Us Versus Them. And mm. God, we probably don't have time to get into it, but that, that's a way more interesting story than Kubert, I think, because it had live action actors. It had scenes with actors yes. interspersed with flying footage and computer generated uh, jet planes and spaceships having dogfights over this flying footage. Wow. So it was pretty ahead of its time and unique. But what happened was the... <laughs> The laser disc players weren't exactly ready for prime time. So people in the arcades realized if you were playing a laser disc game, you could play it for 20 minutes and then pound on the side of the cabinet. And the laser disc, which is, you know, basically like a record player in a way, you know, it would skip and it would yeah. sink. And then the game would go like, I don't know what's going on. You get like a blue screen and then you'd go to the arcade operator and say, hey, man, my game just screwed up. I want my money back. Oh, and God. and this started to happen. So it's like, like the tilt too much, you know. <laughs> yeah, 
And uh, so they were starting to lose money on Laserdisc games. And then there was just like all the distributors were like, that's it. We're not taking any more Laserdisc games. And so the game that I developed, Us Versus Them, came out literally just when this was happening. In fact, we had the Gottlieb sued their distributors, their own customers for reneging on their orders. They had ordered so many Us Versus Thems. And then they basically said, no, we don't want them. We're going back. Wow. And Gottlieb was building these machines and then they didn't want to take them. And it was there was a lawsuit. I don't know exactly where it ended up. But anyway, so that also contributed to just a real crash uh, uh, in the arcade industry in, the, in 1984. Wow. Wow. I mean, we're going to have to have you back and talk about us versus them. But like I, one of the things that was interesting when we were looking at when I was you sent us some links and I was looking at some of the other things you've been connected to, like the T2 game. Uh, NBA jams, right? I think it was and uh, Mortal Kombat. And actually, Manny, I don't know when you looked at it, if you missed that, you know, you could play as Warren's head is on in NBA jam. Holy nostalgia. So, yeah. So <laughs> it's like, so I was going to ask you, so you were, so awesome. you were responsible for the, the, the arcade game of this or no, no, no. I, the I home wanna, game. Yeah. Let me be clear about that. So my yeah. contribution to Mortal Kombat and NBA jam was the, digitization system that allowed digitized actors to be used in the game. Wow. Oh, I developed this, uh, this software that used a a hardware digitizer and, uh, and sort of was tuned to make life easy for our game developers that they could digitize live actors and use them in the games. Wow. And uh, so I didn't contribute to the game uh, of Mortal Kombat. That was Ed Boon and John Tobias and a bunch of other people. And I didn't contribute to the game of uh, NBA Jam. It was Mark Turmel and a bunch of other people. Um, but I, like I said, my contribution was the, the their ability to generate digitized graphics, which is kind of what Midway became known for in the 1990s. That was yeah. their, that was their, we were heads and shoulders above anything anybody else was doing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, like the ability to do that, to put the, like the faces, I remember that was a big deal. Like the, to have that head or whatever, like you wanted to, that's what you wanted to get to. So yeah, that's great. And, yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. so what, uh, what the NBA jam team did is they took all the guys that worked at Williams and they digitized <laughs> our heads so that in the tournament edition, not the mm-hmm. original, but NBA jam tournament edition, which does a, a record keeping, you can, it actually stores records for any player. You just have to put in your initials and birthday. Oh, and wow. so, but they, <laughs> they programmed our initials and birthdays so that if you put in our initials and birthdays, our heads and names pop up on the player's body. So you can, <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. My that's head. A, yeah. Oh, wow. That is amazing. That's like an awesome little Easter egg right there. Like to think. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh I yeah. Mean, there were, I, I got a lot of mileage out of that back in the eighties and nine or back in the nineties that rather. You know, if I was in an arcade and there was an NBA Jam tournament edition, I'd play as myself, and people would be like, "Well, how did you do that? Wait a minute!" Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. So wow. you you dev- you helped with the T two Judgment Day? Yes, I was on the I was on the development team for T two and Revolution X. There was the core team um, were was three programmers and three artists. Uh, I wasn't the lead on either of them. George Petro was the lead and uh, Jack Hager was the art lead. And um, the teams grew as, as, as we needed other people to finish the, the project. But yeah, they both had core teams of, uh, of uh, about six people each. Wow. Oh, I remember. I do remember that. that game was yeah 
intense. Yeah, I yeah. Still remember, that was the one with the guns, right? You had to. Yeah. I remember, and there was like two players. Oh, that's yeah, a good I one. remember that being huge. The, the, I don't think I stopped. I spent a lot of money on that game. That was a <laughs> very popular game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My contribution, uh, I mean, I programmed a bunch of things in that in that game, but my my main contribution, I think, was the uh, the SWAT van level. That was all me. Mm. You're in the SWAT van, and then the the helicopter comes in and tries to smash into you, and you have oh. to, shoot to keep it away. And then the truck comes in, and you have to. Yeah, I I love doing that. I thought that was great. When your games come, when the games come out, you've been on them. You've played. You you go and you are searching them out to play them in public. Like, do you want to see that working in public? I mean, it's nice to see, but I, you know, I've kind of been there. I can't answer that question for me, you know, uh, right. but no, I mean, it's uh, listen, you, the other thing I think you need to realize is I don't think anybody ever expected any of these games to still be around now. Right. I mean, they were made to be disposable entertainment, you know, oh, it's got a six month life, you know, and then, it, and then everybody's moving on to the next thing. The fact that anybody still remembers or talks about any of these games is just astounding to me and yeah. probably most of the people I work with. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because like obviously with our podcast, we're not, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia and the fact that some, there's probably times throughout your career that all of a sudden it's like, wait, why are you bringing this up 10, 10 years ago? Like, you know, there's waves probably of like, oh, everyone's bringing up q again. Like, and there's like, groups that play like like at my brewery we have like retro game night that's l-i-t-h-o-l-o-g-y brewing.com you know because it's a thing like we have super nintendo sega genesis nintendo like it's all up there mm -hmm. because people are more interested in playing you know not for a while they don't want to play for hours but they want to like they want to remember what it was like to play that game and it is a little bit more challenging like even my nieces and nephew we bought them Arcade Up, you know, I don't know if you know that company. One Up, yeah, sure. One Up, that's what I mean. Um, so we bought them a One Up, like Mrs. Pac-Man, Pac-Man like game, and there's like Dig Dug is on there, and I hadn't played <laughs> Dig Dug in forever. And there's a Bubble Bobble, and I was oh, like, God. "What? <laughs> I could play Bubble Bobble for like all day long." Mm. And even at the brew, I just got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the four-player game, which I thought it was like. As I'm playing it, I'm like, "This was such a quarter grab." Like you just wanted to constantly keep yeah. playing and just buttons. And I, I don't know if I even knew how, it, how what I was doing. I was just hitting A and B and I was like, <laughs> this is just so much fun. So yeah. Yeah. it's crazy. Like you, you, you're seeing all this now. A major question I have is, so now you have the Oculus. Are you still programming till this day? I do a little bit. Yeah. You do? Is gameplay now going to be as nostalgic as the games back in the day were? Hmm. I would say- Probably yes, because the way nostalgia works, people become nostalgic for whatever they had in their childhood. That's a, just just the way nostalgia works. I remember uh, in the 1970s, there was a huge nostalgia for the 1950s. Mm. Everything was 1950s. Everybody loved the 1950s. And I do believe it happens on 20 year cycles for a very specific reason. You know, when you're eight or six, you know. That's your childhood. And then when you're 26, suddenly you're a, an adult with a job who has money to consume. And that's <laughs> where you can actually spend money trying to relive parts of your childhood. So hmm. I, I think there's a very you know understandable reason for that. So, yeah, I think 
whatever people were into when they were a child as an adult, that's what, that's what they're going to be nostalgic for. Mm -hmm. So people are going to be playing Fortnite. 20 years from now Pro, i mean sorry bud <laughs> i i every time anytime i've tried i yeah. got killed immediately and i'm just like i can't i can't get this. into that game i don't know like well my nephew plays all these games and i'm like i don't know i just want to play games that i liked when i was younger and i have the oculus and i think it's mind-blowing but i still find myself going towards the nintendos and i guess it's because it's just familiar like what you're saying it's just like the, the joy of being a child, yeah. the joy of that yeah. that play, yeah. you know. Well, the beauty of so. our world is that you can choose your forms of entertainment, you know. Um, some people love games. Some people love, you know, watching sports on TV or going to going to live sports. You know, everybody's into different things, you know, and, and that's none of it is right or wrong. You know, the, if there's something that that you click with, something that you love uh, and it's there for you, it's fantastic. So do you play games? I do not spend a whole lot of time playing games. I've tried. I've, I've got a PS4 and mm. um, uh, I've got a, a VR headset because I do love VR. I love virtual reality. I think mm. the potential for it is phenomenal. But, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't know that it's being used exactly the way I would want to see it used. I'd love to see it used for even non-game-like things. I think it's yeah. a great tool for visiting places you can't be and mm. things like that virtual museums you know i think it would be a great thing and i i know that some of those exist i i don't know that i have seen any personally but yeah i actually worked on a system back in like 2008 that had the potential for that but it fortunately mm. didn't go anywhere but yeah i i love vr uh and uh but there, i don't love many modern games i just mm. uh i do find that a lot of games rely too much on cutscenes. Because they want to tell a story. Yeah. And in order to tell a story, they have to show you stuff. I don't want to sit there and watch a movie. Mm. I don't want to sit there and watch a movie for more. Honestly, if a cutscene is more than 15 seconds, it's too long. Yeah. Because I'm not playing a game. I'm sitting and watching a movie then. Yeah. And there are cutscenes that are two and three minutes. I'm like, Jesus, get, get on it with it. I want to play the game. Well, yeah, because now you have like major actors and people like in those games. So it's just like they're coming in, they're getting paid. It's like, well, if we're going to pay you, we're getting three minutes out of you. We're not just <laughs> yeah. doing a 15 second cutscene with like Snoop Dogg. You're going to stand yeah. there and you're going to say three <laughs> minutes of dialogue. And I think that's kind of changes the the gaming experience. I think you're right yeah. because I all the games, if I play a modern game and there's a cutscene, I'm looking for I'm like, can I skip through this? Like, is there a way to get <laughs> yeah. through this? Because none of this matters to me unless you're telling right. me. No, how to none get of it level. does. I exactly. just want to play the game. The promise. Like, I don't of, care about the story. I just want to solve the puzzle. The, like, the, come on. The promise of video games is interactivity. Mm. You don't play a video game because you want to sit there and watch a movie. I'm sorry. I, that, I, that just blows my mind that so, like, some really big titles. Huge. Just spend too much time in cutscenes. Yeah. And then also, you know, your controls. It's like, I understand the attempt to make an interactive story because honestly, that's something I always wanted video games to turn into interactive stories. But I think the key is interactive. If you're just pushing a button once in a while and the story is taking you along, uh, that's not it. That's not, mm. then I think that's not the right way to go. But uh, there are games I think that do approach what I what I'm saying. I don't. I wouldn't say there aren't any, but I, I don't have time honestly to to spend weeks and weeks uh, delving into. <laughs> a, you know, some of these games have you know they're like 40 hours of play and stuff, and yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't have the patience, unfortunately. I, I like something shorter. Did you ever play the game Mist? Holy nostalgia. Oh, yeah. Did you like it? I did. I loved I it. I loved that game. <laughs> and because- Because you were saying you like puzzles. I, I thought that was like just an island of puzzles. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's- Yeah. So it, it, it makes you use your yeah. brain. It makes you think, and yet it's still entertaining. It's beautiful to look at. Oh. Uh, and it also, uh, it actually w- was proof of another theory of mine is that, you know, graphics are nice, but they are not what make the game work. Like a lot of mm. people are like, oh, we got to get the water to ripple just right. Oh my God, this hair, this fur, these fur algorithms, it's so realistic. You know, you know, listen, people played Pong and oh, they yeah. were entertained with a square ball moving on a black background. You know, it doesn't, it's not the graphics that make the game work. And sometimes there are people who get too caught up in the graphics, but missed the thing and missed was the graphics were beautiful, but they were still basically still pictures. Yeah. You didn't need the movement. You didn't need like video and it, you filled in the rest. It's, mm. it's also kind of like, you know, I love radio drama. I've always been fascinated with the idea that you create these pictures in your mind just yeah. by hearing audio. Uh, and that's come back a lot with a lot of podcasts, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I loved Mist, and uh, I also loved a game called uh, Shivers. Mm. I don't know if you ever met. It was a PC game, but it was oh. like a really creepy, scary environment. Mm. And but it was basically puzzle solving too. <laughs> and uh, I think my favorite game of all time has to be the Pandora Directive. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. That was a. That sounds familiar. It was a Tex Murphy uh, game. There was a character Tex Murphy who was in a bunch of games, but this one just had an amazing blend of story and interactivity and action. There was some, you know, you were like a lot of it was discovering clues and talking to people, but then there were also these like action scenes. I just thought it was really, really well done. Kudos. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah. What was it again? The Pandora, it was the Pandora directive. directive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Google it. The recent one I, I, that I've played was the, I think it was called The Room. That's like another puzzle thing where like, yeah. you have to like move the puzzle around and figure out like what it's, like you, it, there's no hints. Like, right. it's just like, mm. figure this puzzle out. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, I'm really big into that. And like, I apologize that I didn't really play Qbert as a kid. But now that you talked about it, it's like a puzzle. I'm like, I'm going oh, to you gotta play figure it. out how to play this uh, game. I played that all <laughs> like the time. Dan, you were so, like, I saw your face, Dan, when you were talking about it. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, how did I not play this game yeah. as a child? Yeah. Like, I'm, like, trying to figure out what game I played. I played it. At Nathan's. I'm like, at Nathan's, I remember, like, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker game was on there. Like, <laughs> Such I a was weird just, like, game. thinking about all the different, yeah, that was a weird game. Um, but, like, Hubert, I never really, like, I I maybe played that one time, but I'm like, wait, it's a puzzle game? Like, yeah. I'm down. I think I'm down. it was because- I'm definitely going to be checking that out. I think it was because I had an Atari, and then I played it in the arcade, but I had an Atari, and Atari tried to emulate that arcade, like, gameplay with the with the controller. So, you had Hubert, I had Robotron, Centipede, like, these things that were just in, like, a kind of a box, and, like, you, you, you have the gameplay there. Um, but, yeah, man- I mean, Warren, I feel like we could go on for I know, we could. another three hours. I was going to ask you about, did you ever hear about the game The Incredible Machine? <laughs> the Incredible Machine. Wow, that sounds very familiar. I think I have encountered that in my travels. It was, it was basically like 
they give you a couple of things. They're like, all right, there's a switch and you need to turn off the switch. Here's a basketball, a fan, and what, uh, trampoline. And you have to like move the things in certain ways to get the basketball to shut off the switch. And like right. every right. puzzle got harder. And like uh, this room, the gravity was, you know, this. So everything floats a little bit. So mm-hmm. it was, yep. they haven't re- redone it. And I'm like waiting for, like, I want Oculus to like, come up with oh, God. incredible machine. Yeah. yeah. Oculus has the room and the mist, I believe, is coming out with um for Oculus. And I was like, oh, I'm getting that. See, I, I want to yeah. be in I want to be in mist. If like if Oculus comes so up with a Maniac Mansion, then I'm gonna get it. Because Maniac Mansion, I used to play that constantly on Nintendo. And I couldn't get enough of that game. Um and I wish they, you know, would come out you know, with another version of that, but there'll probably be a thousand cutscenes, and Maniac Mansion had a few, <laughs> but for a Nintendo game, but um, yeah, it's just, I just feel like there's, when we think of video games, like we sometimes always forget, like we always are in the present of the games, but we forget of the rich, amazing history that gaming and video games and arcades, especially arcade games being like the foundation really of the things that we're seeing. Um, and how much, you know, has went into them and everyone that's out there, you know, have created these, but Warren, thank you so much for coming and talking about your experiences. I mean, I feel like this just scratches the surface. I feel like we have to have you back and really get into some of this other stuff, but. Well, absolutely. I'd be happy to come back, but I have to say that you're, you know, talking about video game history. It's interesting. There's, it's a subject that I've become aware in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Mm that is really ballooned. A lot of people yeah. are suddenly, for me, it seems suddenly interested in video game history. And yeah. to that end, I actually wrote a memoir. So yeah. if anybody is interested in hearing more, actually, I think I, I told some stories in this podcast that are not in the book, if I remember. <laughs> uh, so kudos to you guys for pulling those out of me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this book originally self-published and then basically it came out and there was a pandemic. So I, I wasn't able to really promote it, but mm. uh, I contacted publishers uh, during the pandemic, uh, the early days, 2020 found, found a publisher who was interested in publishing. It and just, just this month, a couple of weeks ago, officially came oh. out in hardback. Wow. Oh, I just, I know. <laughs> hardback. I know that, that. Uh, this is probably most people will not be seeing this on, no, I'll on take, just hearing, but I will, we'll take a picture and we'll here. post this video. Let on make a sound, I'll make a sound here. Hang on. <laughs> it's a real book. Everybody it looks beautiful. <laughs> it's it's a, yeah. And we'll uh, put the link to the book, like uh, in the, uh, in the show notes and, and everything like sure. that. Sure. Yeah. And it's available, you know, wherever uh, books can be ordered online, yeah. uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, or your favorite independent bookstore. Uh, if you want to support them. And uh, also people have asked if they could get autographed copies. And that's why I have it available on yeah. my site, um, warrendavisshop.square.site. And people can order it autographed if they want. Wow. That's awesome. But there's a lot of stories in there, uh, not only about my Gottlieb days, but also about my, you know, Williams days uh, and, uh, and, and more. And, and, you know, before, after there, there's my entire history. I don't talk too much about my personal life because that's boring. Who wants who wants to read about that, right? <laughs> so uh, I tried to keep it uh, on point, and yeah. uh, it's gotten some great reviews, which I'm very yeah. grateful for. So uh, yeah. I, I hope uh, people enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, wow. no, that's great. I mean, 
I can't wait to read more about it. I can't. And I wish we could have like four hours because I was like, (laughs) I would want so much more. But that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming by. My pleasure. And everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, you know, one, definitely check out Warren's book. Go there. We'll put the link in the show notes. Hit that link and go and like get that book. It's really, the reviews are really amazing. And, you know, everyone, you know, also support a local artist and someone who's, you know, in books and reading, uh, all good things. But Dan, also- Dan loves books. Uh, love it. <laughs> but also, you know, um, hit us with a, you know, a nice review on Spotify. Tell us what you think about this episode and also any questions about it. Or what are your favorite games? Like remembering your favorite arcade games. We'd love to see them and hear about them and uh, post that right in the comments. But Warren, thank you again so much for being here. Been a pleasure. And- you guys are awesome. And is there, oh, and how can people, you know, is there any way people could follow you or anything else? Uh, you want yeah, social media? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't waste a lot of time on social media, but I do have a little presence there. Uh, people can connect with me uh, on Twitter at Warren Davis 29. And uh, on Facebook, I have a, a, a private page, which a lot of people friend me, but I, I will not really accept your friend request on my private page, but I have a public page too. It's facebook.com slash Warren Davis 29. Awesome. Please, yeah, come over and like that page. That'd be fantastic. Absolutely. And we'll put the link to that as well so that everyone can go and like the page and friend Warren. But Warren, again, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Super. I love listening and learning about these things. This is super great. So thank you so much for coming. Loved being here, guys. Thank you again. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much and see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to the Nostalgia Test podcast to know when new episodes drop. Don't forget to leave us five stars and a positive review so more people can find the podcast. Share your thoughts and memories on today's topic on our Twitter at Nostalgia Test and on Instagram at The Nostalgia Test. Tune in next time because you never know what pop culture will pop up on The Nostalgia Test.